Oh, hello there. Welcome to the first episode of the show. By way of housekeeping and introduction, I just want to say that um, the general idea for the show is to sort of do the Charlie Rose show, but with less Charlie. Um, that's the basic premise here. So I'm going to try to keep my mouth shut uh, a fair amount during the episodes and let you hear from our guests, who I think you'll find to be interesting. So that's the setup, and uh, let's get into some stuff here. This is pretty cool. Um, this podcast is sponsored today by Field Notes Brand. USA-made memo books and other products, including seasonal limited editions. Visit fieldnotesbrand.com or 400 North May Street in Chicago. Field Notes makes sweet stuff, and they are super nice people, so please check them out if you're not already familiar with them. Uh, also, I wanted to say thanks to the Chicago Podcast Cooperative, for hooking up our sponsorships, uh, you can learn more about what they're doing at chicagopodcastcoop.com. That's also spelled the same way as chicagopodcastcoop.com. Anyway, thank you for tuning in, and uh, here we go with the show. I also want to welcome everybody to our premiere Debut, first ever, inaugural, I'm trying to think of another synonym, episode. Um, we'll see how this goes. We're going to try to get it off the ground, and hopefully you'll enjoy it. And I think you will enjoy my first guest, uh, Michael Simons, who's an interesting, sweet, cool cat. So on with the show. The worst. So it goes. We can talk about something else. Okay, we'll talk about other stuff and come back. Um, so we're in our first episode again. Boy, after some technical difficulties with uh, Michael Edward Simons, yes. a.k.a. Simo, yeah. a.k.a. Mike. What does your family call you? Your brother Paul calls you Michael. I get Mikey a lot. Okay. Um, from my nieces and nephews, eh, everybody, I guess it depends on the, the context. Yeah. It's either Mike, Michael or Mikey or Simo for, you know, a lot of people. I don't know where that came from, but right. it was as an adult that that happened. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Um, yeah. You don't know who pinned that one on you? I don't actually. But it was definitely after, you know, after I moved to Chicago as an adult. Yeah. Yeah. Siamese, um, when I was younger, it was actually little Siamese. My brother Paul was the original Siamese. Big Siamese? I was the little Siamese. Yeah. Nice. But not Simo. That came later. And that was like what, like his friends would call you little Siamese yeah. or something like that? Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Lil Simey, here, first guest, and in the background, as we talked about before, <clears throat> second guest, Beesh, yeah, who's in town on a visit. Um, so we were talking, <clears throat> unfortunately, we lost a lot of good stories about your uh, career in the travel tour business. Yes, right. 
we were talking about being a tour director and tour guide. Yeah, for yeah. groups of largely senior citizens, you said most? Senior citizens and high school choirs and marching bands, oh, which I was, that. that was really fun. That part was great. Like you got to go to Disney World and go backstage and, you know, see Mickey Mouse smoking a cigarette with his head off, that kind of thing. Yeah. <laughs> it was pretty great. Um, yeah, working with student groups was really fun. I can imagine that was a different kind yeah. of energy. Yeah, totally. Um, and you said that this started when you, or your interest in it kind of started when you did a year abroad, study abroad thing in Sweden? Yeah, I took my senior year abroad in Sweden for the full year. Had just like an amazing, life-changing experience during that time and came back and just wanted to keep keep moving, keep traveling. Talk, will you talk about like what, what made you decide to go on a study abroad thing? What made you pick Sweden? Kind of how that played it out? It was totally, you? totally random. I mean, I decided I wanted to to study abroad just because I wanted to do it. I wanted to see something outside of, you know, the U.S. And I walked into the study abroad office and I picked up a pile of brochures and grabbed one. And it was a picture of Stockholm on the front. And it just said the Swedish program, Stockholm. And I was like, this... This looks good. But I had no, you know, most of the people I studied abroad with had some connection to Sweden through their ancestry or, you know, their parents worked there or something. I just kind of, it was really you like that random brochure. for me. I liked that brochure. I liked the way the city looked. And I was like, this sounds, I liked the, the, the word Stockholm. It just sounded strong and interesting. And so... That's what I did. Right. And it's pre-internet, so it's hard to really know where you're going. Oh, yeah. Right. Yeah. But I mean, I do a lot of things that way without, um, without like really researching something, just kind of going with the experience and, and uh, letting that guide, guide me through it as opposed that's, to studying up on things. That's a pretty interesting approach. So in other areas of life, do you... Do you have a strong feeling about a particular thing? Like in that case, is it you feel a strong affinity, so you're like, okay, I'm going to go with that? Or is it more that you say, well, whatever I pick will probably be fine, so I'm not going to burden myself with too much research, and I'll just... Like, do you need a really clear signal, or is it okay even if the signal isn't clear, you're still going to, like, pick without researching? Yeah, I think it's... it um, seems like it's more the latter. I mean... It just, uh, the way that I function and operate is just feels more on an intuitive level, even in my professional life, you know, whatever, like I sort of didn't, didn't plan to do anything that I've done. It's been more on some kind of a stream of consciousness way to get there. And that's just kind of the way my mind works for mm -hmm. whatever reason. Yeah. You're not, and you seem like you're comfortable with that. Like you're not I am at this, at this point, I am. I mean, when you get to, you know, when you get to be, we've been around for a while, you kind of like stop pushing against what you think should be or what other people tell you should oh, be. I and see. You kinda, so were you, were you less comfortable at an earlier point? Is that what you mean? That you're. No, but I would notice people around me like 
researching things and planning. Like I, I've never really been goal oriented or, um, you know, planned to get from point A to point B. I've just kind of found my way mm-hmm. there. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess at some point just felt that that's, that's me and that's a fine way to go about doing things. And, um, so yeah, there was a fair, fair amount of beating myself up over, you know, various things, X, Y, and Z. I think after a while you learn what's important and let the rest kind of go. Do you feel like you have in general a fairly finely tuned sense of intuition? Like, are you confident in your ability to suss things out? Um, more, more recently than earlier in life. Earlier in life, it was like, I don't know, there was some aspect of being not fully awake, I think, for, for a number of years. I think in more, in more recent years, and even especially in more recent months, that's gotten more finely tuned. Do you know why that transition, like, can you ascribe a reason to? Um, just, just, just going through, you know, this last year, there've been some, some hard times and some multiple things that have happened and, um, and going through those experiences has helped me to, um, be more present, uh, in, in a moment and be more present in wherever I am as opposed to worrying about the future or regretting something about the past and kind of spinning off into, um, fantasies in either direction. And so that's been kind of, that's kind of made me more aware of where I'm at and what the process is and be, be able to kind of, um, rather than just be in it to like kind of step outside, whatever the experience is and see what it is or see what pattern I might be slipping back into something like that. So I think it's just a matter of, um, just great, greater awareness and, and then being able to use that to, right. And then kids, I mean, I think having, having kids really helps with that too. Because um, makes you have no choice but to be in the moment a lot of the time, <laughs> you know, with 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 babies and um, and to like be in real time as opposed to uh, somewhere else mm-hmm. in your in your head. But I don't know that that really gets at the like the intuition thing we were talking about. So I'm not sure. But that's a that's an interesting thing too, and I think that. It's interesting that I think for you, some stressful stuff, right? Your dad's illness, maybe mm-hmm. having babies. I don't know what else would be on your list of of those things, but that they would. Um, I think some people, you can go into turtle mode, right? Where you kind of get, you, you go on lockdown. But for you, it sounds like it's actually <laughs> loosened up certain things. And I think be, it's interesting to be able to be, to feel stressful stressed or or whatever but have that be a trigger for you to be able to step outside it it seems like a pretty useful thing 
Yeah, I think it is. <clears throat> I mean, it has been. Uh, yeah, and I think like experiences like that. Yeah, they just they just uh, I don't know. I don't know what I'm. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Did you? Have there been phases where you felt like you were out of sync with your intuition, or do you always like kind of feel like you kind of know where you're? Oh, there have definitely definitely been phases when I was out of sync with my intuition, and yeah, again, it just kind of felt like there was a period of time when I was some part of me was asleep, or I was just unaware, mm-hmm. not not fully awake to a lot of things around me and things in myself. I think that's probably pretty common for, for people as they grow older to come more attuned. I don't know. Hopefully. Yeah. I mean, ideally, I think that's right. I wonder if that's, I wonder if most people feel that's true. I guess maybe you get some confidence in your own, I don't know, abilities or perceptions or something. It can, I mean, it might be confidence, but it's also acceptance of like, all right, well, that's who I am and I'm going to change what I can change. But like, it's, it's also okay to, for people to do things differently. And there, I think there are a lot of times in life where society or advertising or whatever is telling you that you need to do things in a certain way or you're, you know, you're going to fall behind or you're not on track or, and if you actually ignore that stuff and, and, and trust your, your intuition, you know, you'll get where you need to, to be. So it is confidence in that sense. It's also interesting because I think it, it sometimes takes work to, sort of stay loose because as life goes on and people get on a path or whatever it can become, there can be some calcification or whatever. And totally. To, to make sure that you're... Right, you can not, be on autopilot. You can... <clears throat> right, exactly. Both, you know, in your mind and in your daily activities. Yeah. Do you find that it's easy for you not to get caught in that trap? Or do you have a like a particular... Like, approach that you take to make sure that you're not falling. I I mean, I I don't know. I don't (coughs) feel like I have a struggle with that particular thing as much, but, but the idea of like being where, wherever it is you are, like being awake and present in that moment versus worrying that type of thing. That's really challenging for Mm me. I tend to like, my mind tends to spin off into worrying about the future or, you know, thinking about the past or, you know, in all areas of life, professionally, you know, personally, it's just, that's a challenge. But I think the, the more that I'm able to do it, the easier it becomes. How do you approach that? Do you, do you think to yourself, okay, hang on, I'm starting to spin out. I need to, yeah. Do you have that conversation with yourself? Yeah. Yeah. And then try to look at what's behind whatever that particular thing is. And because there's, you know, there can be so much that's happening in your life and so many factors to be able to give yourself a break and realize, well, okay, well, you know, you just, you know, you just lost 
someone you love or you've just went through a physical challenge or something like that, just to like be able to let it go, give yourself a break, give yourself the time that you need, um, helps too. Yeah. Yeah. I like it. I like it. Um, I wanted to pop. So you talked about the, the year in Sweden. What, what aspect of it was so affecting to you? Was so what? Affecting to you. So you oh, oh, um, uh, because I was pulled totally out of context of who I am here, which is really, I think, a liberating experience as a young person, you know, college age, to be kind of placed into a brand new context where, um, you know, nobody knows your personal history or your social history or whatever. You can kind of, um, you, you have a, bl a blank slate and people are interested in you in a way that you haven't experienced before because, you know, you're from the U.S. or, you know, whatever it is. So I found that was really, I really enjoyed that aspect of it, but then just, just being in a new, a new culture, a new city right. on my own, um, not on my own totally, but you know, with a, with a group of people that was really exhilarating. And I just love, I love the city, Stockholm and the culture and, you know, everything about it. It was just a great experience. And by the time, by the time school was over and summer rolled around, you know, I had a job and was living in an apartment and it was just nonstop fun. You had a job there? I did. Yeah. What was your job there? I was selling, um, crystal, Swedish crystal to American tourists off the, uh, cruise ship. You mean like glasses? Like what does that mean, crystal? Swedish crystal is a thing like Costa Boda and Orafors are these, you know, um, I guess high-end crystal. So it was glasses and figurines and bowls and vases and things like that. And, um, you know, the cruise ships would pull into port and they would bring the group over. And this is before I was a tour director, so it was related to that. But, um, and you would sell, you were selling Swedish crystal to American tourists. So they tried to hire American students to, to work because there was some degree of familiarity for the, for the people. So that was really, it was fine. But it, the, the, the fun part was, was the rest of the summer because, you know, in, in Sweden you have, uh, like 22 hours of light a day. So, you know, if you come out of bar, come out of a bar or a club at like two in the morning, it looks like noon, you know? And so everybody's just living it up in the summertime. It's really fun. Was that disorienting to be somewhere where it was light all day and night? Uh, yeah. In terms of sleep, it was for sure. Cause you didn't, you just didn't get a lot of sleep. Like your clock was, was different. And the winter was the opposite cause you had very little sunlight. And if the, when the sun was up, it was like, you know, an inch above the horizon that was as, as high as it gets in the winter. So very sleepy and, you know, and that's kind of the national character of the Swedes too. It's like, you know, everybody's just 
so joyful in the summertime and kind of opposite in the winter. Yeah, that's interesting. Mm-hmm. Was that hard? I would be for me. I think it would be hard to be in the dark all day. Not really for me because it wasn't it wasn't life. You know, it was it was all brand new. So it was another aspect of of the experience rather than you know my life. Um, so we were talking before about your some of your travel experiences, mm-hmm. and you were talking about in other places, other cities or foreign countries, you said the two things you like to do were thrift shops and record stores. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Nice. So talk about that stuff. Talk about, well, like I mean, just that's dig them out. And I don't know how, how that happened. I would just, uh, we would arrive in a city and I would have a group with me, a group of seniors or, or students and, I would orient them for lunch and their free time, and then I would just go off and wander. And I just somehow always seemed to gravitate to find the record stores and the thrift stores. There was no internet. There was no like looking it up on my iPhone or anything like that. I would just kind of wander. And you, there were there were, I don't know, there were certain patterns in the cities that you would f- find by visiting so many time after time. It's like you know. Usually, right outside of the central business district, there were more neighborhoody type places, or you would find out where the university is. And if you went to close to where the university was, you were always going to find record stores and thrift st- stores and um, cool places to eat and just kind of sit and watch. So I always, I always kind of left the downtown or the central business district and tried to find. Um, the neighborhoods. Were you like when you went to the thrift stores? Were you looking for anything in particular? Did you buy stuff? Did you just like? The yeah, I bought of- stuff. It was just you know clothes and um, I don't know whatever it was and 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 flea markets too. So and then you know I would work the same tour for like eight or ten weeks. So by the time, you you know, the first time you found where the places are, you could kind of work from there the next time you came around and say, I want to go back to that place or ask questions too. You could always ask questions. So I, I definitely bought records a lot and uh, clothes and knickknacks and, you know, old postcards that I could send home to friends and stuff like that. Did you like going to thrift stores because you just like the experience of browsing through there and checking out and seeing the stuff. Or I just like, like, I like old stuff. stuff. Okay. I just, I love old things that, you know, have, have an unknown history, but have been, you know, handled and passed on and probably have stories behind them that you don't know about. I, I love places and things like that. That's why I love Milwaukee. It's got that feel. The whole city seems to have that feel to me. Yeah, I yeah. think I know what you mean, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's so do you you think about like when you're in a thrift store and you pick something up, are you thinking like I wonder where this came from or wonder what the story is behind this? Yeah. Sometimes. Yeah. Um so you mentioned Milwaukee, is that a favorite city of yours in the US? I like Milwaukee. Yeah. A lot. <laughs> I mean, it's close, and 
I've only been there really a handful <laughs> of times, but I do like those. Um, I do like kind of checking out what you would call like second tier cities or something like that, you know, and Milwaukee's just, it's just cool. You know, it has a, I don't know, kind of a vintagey old European kind of vibe to me, but it's also on the lake and it's industrial and I just think it's cool. That's why I love Duluth, Minnesota too. The same reason. It's just, I don't know the feeling about it. It's similar. And so you've been a lot, you were talking before about places you've been, like when you were working for a company, Mm -hmm. um, are there places you haven't been that you particularly want to go? Like, do you feel like some kind of draw to a particular place? Not really. I mean, I've, I've, I've come a little disconnected from my, um, wanderlust, like, because it's been so long since I've really traveled but uh you know i mean i've never been to africa or south america or india or the poles you know i would love to i think once you go like once you start traveling then you really i get really get the itch and be like oh what have i been doing all these years you know i need to yeah but it's been a while since i've had that feeling yeah so you worked for a tour company as a tour guide tour director whatever you would call it what? yeah I, worked, I was a tour guide and a tour director so I worked for a couple different tour companies doing outbound trips you know some international a lot here I went to Branson Missouri like a thousand times um, which was hilarious and then when I wasn't on the road I was a tour guide here in Chicago it's called a um, step on guide is the, is the name of it where you like step on to somebody else's bus and give them a city tour for a couple of hours and then you step off the bus and I see they okay. go on their merry way. <clears throat> um, and then you own your own tour business for a period of time. Right, right. right. Like I got burned out as a tour director, which happens pretty quickly. Um, and one out, can you, <clears throat> I just the travel or the, it's the travel. It's the pe- constantly being with people, constantly being on a bus. Um, you just, you just get burnt out after a few years and I wanted to, and, and you don't have a lot, you're not really able to have a life mm-hmm. outside of that. Cause when you're home, you're home for, you know, I might be home for three months at a time, but I'm not, I'm not working and everybody else is you know, living their lives and you're not really part of the fabric of, of, or continuity of, of life at home. You're, you just kind of plunk down there for a couple months and then, you know, you're going to be off again on the road. So, um, that gets old. And, uh, and so I was a tour guide here and I had been a tour director and, um, had a lot of contacts and just thought, well, I should just, we'll just start a company here and bring people to Chicago. And so that's what I did with John Singer, who's, you know, a good friend. And he was a colleague at the time, tour director. We decided to do it together and just had a couple of really close um, group leaders that we had worked with overseas in many different countries with their groups and just said, hey, why don't you bring a group here and we'll, we'll, you know, we'll show you a good time and we'll 
we'll take care of your hotel and your restaurants and shows and stuff like that. And we literally started that way. And then over eight years built up, um, a destination management company is what it was called at the time. So it was like half tour company for, for people to come into Chicago in groups. And then we had a whole corporate side where we did like, you know, travel for pharmaceutical meetings and, um, things like that. So they would say we need to have an annual meeting somewhere or a conference. Yeah, there'd be a, there'd be a pharmaceutical meeting and, you know, we would get sedans for all of the attendees to meet them at the airport and meet them with a sign and put them in the car and bring them back. And then there'd be a whole slate of activities that they could do half day tour here behind the scenes tour there, you know, that kind of thing. And we, so we would work with the companies to set that all up for them. And then with the tour on the tour side, it was a lot of high school groups and again, senior citizens from Iowa coming in on a bus for a three night highlights of Chicago thing or sports themed thing or right. haunted thing you know, tour, what, you know, whatever it You're was. So we, guy. we had lots of themes. Yeah. Cause that's how you kept, ha- that's how you kept them coming back. Like the same group of people. By having a different theme for yeah. each visit. Yeah. Yeah. Or is based around this exhibit at the Museum of Science and Industry or the Rockwell exhibit, Norman Rockwell exhibit at the History Museum. You'd build a whole itinerary around that and related to that that was exciting for the group leaders and something different for them to offer their their people. So, yeah, we ran with that for seven or eight years. I feel like you're a theme. You're sort of a theme guy in other areas. So I'm trying to piece this together now. Yeah, yeah. Theme um, guy, huh? I feel like Sandoval oh, likes a theme. Yeah. I guess so. Um, like the ukulele cabaret was a theme thing. Right. But outside of that, I don't... What other theme things do you... I feel like when we're talking about ideas for um, for rec- for albums, stuff oh, yeah. that you kind of gravitate towards a theme or... Mm-hmm. Yeah, certainly some of those shows, right? Like the the ukulele cabaret thing. That you right, know. right. There During was always a theme for those. Theme, yeah, right? that's true. Stuff like that. Yeah. Um, yeah, interesting. Um, what did you learn? What did you learn about people from running that business? Um, hmm. you know, the honest truth is that I wasn't really thinking about people at the time. I wasn't really, like I said earlier, like I wasn't fully awake to, to where I was in life and what was going on. I mean, so it was more a matter of, and I, I was, I kept myself really buffered from the passengers. So I didn't become personally involved. And looking back, I think I could have been a little bit more open to that and a little bit more open to like being in the experience. But I had more of a, a different kind of perspective on it at the time that like, you know, this was a job and, you know, I was doing what I needed to do for them. Um, so, I mean, I guess I learned about group dynamics, really, and what groups of people 
what their patterns can be. And that if there isn't, when, you know, when you have a group of people together, um, there's a, there's a, there's a way of behaving that you can, where, where you can make things happen and need to make things happen. And I took that with me, I guess, through, through life. Like anytime I was in a group, whether it was a group of friends or a group of family or something, and, and it's just like, nobody can make a decision and it's taking forever to do anything and everybody wants to do something different. I think, you know, I learned about that dynamic and kind of how to, uh, how to pick a path and a theme (laughs) and get everyone united. Right. That seems like a pretty useful, useful skill. Yeah. Yeah, I think it is. I think, I think it is. And, you know, I worked with a lot of, a lot of senior citizens too. And I think at the time I was, um, I kind of placed them in a box as old people, which I think in the United States, um, we're kind of brought up to do. Whereas in other countries, there's, there's a little bit more respect and reverence for, um, the older generation, but you know, as I've aged and gotten older, you realize that those people were, were young and have a lot of experience, um, and have been through things that, that you don't, and you know, you're, you're not as, as, as smart as you think, Mm -hmm. but I didn't realize it at the time. So, I mean, looking back on it, I think about all of those people and, you know, what their lives had been like when they were younger and what they had been through. But at the time I was a little bit callous, I think about that. There were certain, there were certain people who, you know, their personalities would shine through. or I would really have a personal connection with, but it was kind of few and far between because I wasn't open to it. And I don't know if I really should have been either. I think it is good to keep a professional distance in those cases too, where you've got 40 people you can't show favoritism you can't you know you've got a job to do you're busy right. right um how about in terms of interacting with people like for example negotiating i imagine you had to do a certain amount of that in in that job when you ran the company um yeah but that i feel like that's always come naturally to me negotiating right? yeah yeah, I mean, my dad was a great negotiator, so I learned from him just like out of the womb, you know, that that's just always been um, second, second nature. Talk me. about what's your approach to that? Like, do you have a general? Um, I don't know. I I don't know what my approach is to like negotiating, like you're talking about like prices, that type of thing. I mean, it's, yeah, I don't really know. Again, like it's more an intuitive thing. There isn't like a rule of thumb for any particular case, but, um, you want every, you know, you want everybody to be happy. So it's a matter of kind of nudging your way to 
the middle of the road based on whatever scenario it is and making somebody feel like they've gotten they've gotten a deal or they've they've gotten something valuable to them and and that you have to so that's that i think is interesting because i think there's you know there's people kind of at one end who are very reluctant to negotiate at all you know to try to change the terms of sort of what's presented at the other end there are people who are basically like i'm just going to hammer away at someone try to get everything I want. And it sounds like your take, your approach is somewhere in the middle. Of not necessarily going to the mat on everything all the time for everything you want. Yeah. But not being afraid to speak up for things you want, right? Yeah. That part seems... I don't know, yeah. I, that's... I think it's... For me, it, when I say it comes naturally, that's more with material things. There are other types of negotiation, mm-hmm. um, interpersonal, you know, social, emotional, whatever you want to call it, where it doesn't come as easily. And I think that, you know, that's more of a challenging area for me. Like negotiating on something material is, is, is pretty easy and second nature. But emotional negotiation is, is different. And there, I'm more re- more reluctant to go to the mat at all. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Can you give an example of some, not a specific example, but the kinds of things when you're talking about that, just to make sure we're on the same page? I mean, like if you're like unhappy with a situation or a dynamic with somebody, and you're trying to. Sort yeah, that just out. keeping 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 sight of what your needs are, and um, and being willing to fight, fight for them. Mm-hmm. That that's sometimes been a challenge for me mm-hmm. because you don't want to upset the other person or what's the, mm-hmm. what, what's the trepidation, the source of it? Yeah, I think that's part, I think that's part of it. Like not wanting someone, someone to be upset with you or, or be critical of you. Um, Yeah, or just having an inclination to be in in deference. Deference is that a word? Is that it a is word? a word? Deference, yeah, to others. Yeah. You know. Um, but that's something that's something that I'm working on every day. Yeah. Yeah. Do you find that you end up do you end up beating yourself up when you think you misplayed it, or do you just say, okay, I'll apply that learning to the next time? Uh, I, I, I've done a lot of beating myself up over the years, but I'm, I think I'm getting to the point where it's, it's more the latter. Yeah. That's yeah. Good. It's getting there. Yeah. All right. <laughs> All right. Let's talk about music for a minute. Yeah. So people who are listening may not know that you are the executive director and founder of a music education nonprofit is a fair way to characterize yeah. the organization called mm-hmm. Intonation mm-hmm. Music Workshop. Yes, sir. Popularly known as Intonation. That's right. In Chicago. Um, and you're also a uh, skilled musician yourself. Thanks, Nick. Um, so 
let's talk a little bit. When did you start playing, and what what instrument did you play first? Because you played drums. Your... I started okay. with drums at like um, middle school. Whenever freeze frame, <coughs> freeze frame came out, I, th- I think that was middle Jay school. Giles band freeze yeah. frame is it? Yeah, nice. I remember practicing on the snare with to that. Sweet. Yeah. Um, you had started playing drums, and then you heard that song. And you heard that song and thought, "I want to hit the drums." No, I think I had started already. Okay, that's yeah. awesome. And yeah. you were in band in school, like lessons in school, or how did that work? No, I took like into. I think I took private lessons in drums in middle school, and then I, you know, in high school, I was part of jazz band and were you a rock band. Your parents were like, that's fine, we'll get you some drums and you can yeah. have them in the house? Yeah. That's pretty good. Yeah, I had a drum set in the basement. Red Tama five-piece kit. Awesome. And I would play to, like, play to different songs on headphones and have people over. To play, to like, play, like other band. instruments? Yeah. 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 Yeah, I was into it. And that was what age you started? Uh, middle school. But even before that, like I remember even when I was little, 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 I was always way into music. Like it was just part of me from the, from the get go. Like I would listen to songs in my room, even when I was like five or six, I had a little record player and I would play 45s over and over and over and over again. Do you remember particular ones that made an impression on you? Yeah. Cause we won a bunch, we won a bunch at the Purim carnival. I remember at Sheremeth in St. Louis. Um, trying to remember. Maybe that was a little bit later. I remember we had cars, Gary Newman cars. The Kiss, I was way into Kiss. I was a member of the Kiss Army. And when they all put out the solo albums, I had Back in the New York Groove on, on a 45. I was way into that one. We'll just play it over and over again. Captain and Tennille when I was really little. Like Love Will Keep Us Together. Yes, that album. But I I mean I, I would learn all the I had a I had a pretty I had a it's an oral memory was pretty strong. Like I would I would know all the words and like all the instrumental parts in my head and I would listen over and over and over. And then started playing like Suzuki violin. I think that was the very first instrument which didn't last long. Mm-hmm. And then I, I don't know why I wanted to be a drummer, but I don't remember, but started playing drums and went from there. And then you played bass as well. Yeah, I, I learned to play bass to be in a particular band in my early 20s. Okay. And then I learned to play upright bass to be in a particular band a little bit later than that. But bass and drums, I mean, they, you know, they walk hand in hand. Upright bass seems like a hard instrument to play, both physically and... Not if you're playing bluegrass. I mean, and not if you're playing rudimentary. Like, rudimentary upright bass, if you're playing bluegrass, is really pretty simple. Because it's one four five pretty much all the time. And you're bouncing back and forth between two notes almost all the time. Right. So I'd say it's easy. It's <coughs> easy if you have... Um, you know, rhythmic inclination, it's easy to be a rudimentary bass player and really, really hard to be an excellent bass player, which I'm, I'm not and never will be. Like, I, I just play very straight ahead. 
Like I could never play jazz on the upright bass. Like that's that's a whole different ball game. Yeah, to me, that well, you have a good sense of pitch. Yeah, that seems to me to be a crucial part of being able to play upright bass. Sure, I yeah, to make sure you're right because I don't know the positions. Like I think the positions would guarantee that you're playing the right note, um, but I just kind of find it. And it's probably off half the time, but it's it doesn't matter. But you find it with your ear. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. right. Yeah. <clears throat> you seem to, along with our other guests in the room, Beach, have a good sense of pitch and relative pitch. Like you can kind of hear where something's supposed to go next. Or like you said, you have that oral memory where you can you you remember what the next chord's gonna be. Yeah. I think so, but I never, I, I never learned, um, to read music or, or music theory. So I think I have an in intuitive sense of that, but I can't name it. Like, I can't tell you what it is, what the chord is, or you like, you can, you can, you know, and both of you guys, I can't, I, but I just know it. You'll say, no, 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 it's this. And you'll sing the note and you're like, it has right. this note in it. That's right. And you right. Can figure out. Right. By ear. Right. Which seems actually to be maybe the more useful I think to yeah skill. I think to a degree it is it is useful I mean that's how we started teaching with intonation that's how that whole thing started was just teaching by ear because that's the way I learned I think that's the way a lot of people learn yeah I think that's yeah. right I think that's right I mean I think Knowing how to name things and stuff has some utility in certain contexts, but in some contexts it doesn't have much at all. It's not that. It's not always that useful. I think it's more useful to, to be able to do what you can do. I think having both is probably the, the most useful. Yeah, perhaps. <laughs> um, so you talked about a couple of those records that you listened to as a kid. Was there like a particular band when you were young? Like I find. Some people have that particular band that really sparked them or pushed them into wanting to, to play music or write music. When I was really, really young, it was whatever was on the radio. Like, I just loved music. I would listen to Magic 108 in St. Louis, which was all the, like, soul and disco hits. Loved all that stuff. Went roller skating on the weekends. Pop music, whatever it was. As I got a little bit older, I kind of latched on to what my brother was listening to my brother Paul in particular, um, which was, I think, I think it was like Genesis and Phil Collins. That was like the first thing that was like, this is my thing. And I'm a freak about this thing was like, and maybe that's where the drumming thing came from. I'm not totally sure, but I just, I'm kind of a, what, I don't know, like a populist, I guess. Like I love just about everything except for the things I really, really don't like. But like, uh, but yeah, so there wasn't any one thing in particular. It was just more everything. It just, so, yeah. Let's go back to that. Are you a person who, like, I think we probably all know some people who are kind of like, they kind of like everything. Yeah. Are you that, are you sort of that person? Do you like? Yeah. Except for the things that I really don't like. What are some of the things you really don't like? Um, um, the band Steppenwolf. Okay. I really, I really don't like, 
I don't like Anthony Kiedis from the Red Hot Chili Peppers. Like, I really, really can't stand him. So there are certain things that are just like pet peevy musically. That's a great pairing. <laughs> um, and Kanye West. Can't stand Kanye West. And there are many, many, many more like that. But but overall, like I, if if there's a good, if there's some if there's some hook or some something there, I just yeah I like a lot a lot of a lot right. of stuff. Yeah, and I've you know I know from your record collection that you're pretty wide ranging and stuff. Is there are there particular things? I think everybody kind of goes through phases, but are there, currently are there things that you find yourself listening to frequently, or are you kind of all over the place, or is there anything? Yeah, these days, pretty much all over the place. I mean, I take my cues for new music from the people I work with because they're all in their twenties. So, um, otherwise, I really, I really can't keep up with um, with new music. So, yeah, it's kind of a uh, kind of boring answer because I really just kind of like throw on Spotify and, uh, you know, play a list of old stuff that I love and maybe hit the radio station associated with that. There's not, it's not a period of discovery for me right now. Right. And that may come around again. Um, do you, or have you in the past had what I like to refer to as secret personal anthem, like a song that was like kind of your, that you felt said something to you or about you that... Hmm. For example, uh, a friend of mine mentioned that... I, we were talking about something that I mentioned, the Ario Speedwagon song role with the changes, and he's yeah. like, that was my secret personal anthem in high school. Like, huh. That was his song that, you know, either motivated him or inspired him or got him through tough times or whatever for at least that period. Yeah. That's a great, great question. I definitely have songs like that, but of of course I'm blanking on them right now. Um, Yeah. Yeah, I'm not coming. I'm sorry. I'm not, it's not coming to me. Give me a, I may circle back with you on that in a minute. Um, Which, what was the first Phil Collins or Genesis stuff you were into? Oh, you know, I think it was like Duke slash Abacab. Okay. That was the first point of entry. Right. And then I went backwards from, you know, went earlier from there. Right. Face value, I think, too, was right around the, the, it was, it was that right was right around, around the same time. Time, time. Right. So, I mean, in the air tonight was just like that was a, quite a gem when I was younger. Were you a fan of uh, Something Going On by Frida? Absolutely, I was. Yeah, sure. Yeah. That's right in your wheelhouse. Come on, Phil Collins and Sweetie. Yeah, that, and that's everything. on my... I have, a, I have a playlist called True Guilty Pleasures, and and, uh, and that song's on that list. Yeah, it's pretty Although you, wouldn't, you probably wouldn't call that song a guilty pleasure. No, it's just a pleasure. You would say that's just a pleasure, yeah. right? I don't really have guilty pleasures. Yeah. Really? I don't think so. Are I don't you sure? Feel guilty about them? Huh. Okay. All right. I have because I because I, I do. Have, I have pleasures that are like unpopular with that are unpopular with most everybody I know, but I'm yeah. not, I don't feel guilty about it. Okay. I 
I sense that in you. They're all welcome to be wrong about it. That's fine. Okay. But aren't there songs that you know you're wrong about and still love? That's a good question. I'd have to think about that. I do know that I have a list of songs I used to hate, but now I love, which doesn't mean give me. I'm, I'm sorry. Now I'm asking you questions, That's but okay. can you give give an example or two? Electric Avenue by Eddie Grant, uh-huh. which I thought was just nonsense when it came out. Yeah, and now I really like it. Um, another song that I felt somebody should try it a lot harder was um, "Dancing on the Ceiling" by Lionel Richie, mm-hmm. and now I view it as like. The guy wrote like a cute hook and like, it's not his fault. It's a hit. You know, it's like, yeah, it's not the most substantial thing, but it's, it's fun. And I could see it for, I could, um, I'm a little less sort of serious and judgmental about it, but I don't know that there's songs that I think I'm wrong about. Mm -hmm. And I have to think about that. Um, yeah. Are there ones that you think you're, wrong about but I don't know now that you break it down and get right to it I mean I guess if you like it you like it you know yeah but I guess yeah right there are songs that I'm embarrassed to love like yeah there are definitely songs I'm embarrassed that I like and still like yeah there's some that I'm more yeah. self-conscious about like that others. I wouldn't yeah that I'm self-conscious about liking Kenny Loggins yeah. and Steve Perry don't fight it some people might be like what are you listening to there Sure. But that's nowhere near as bad as like (laughs) crash test dummies or that's bad. Right? (coughs) Yeah. Or even accounting some of the Counting Crows stuff. Counting Crows is a it's a double edged sword. Right. Because some of the things that guy does are actually pretty great, but it's can it's also hard to take in more than a small dose, I think. For me. There's there that's a band where like a couple's like wonderful, beautiful songs, very well done. But it's the kind of thing where, and there's a number of bands like this. It's it's kind of like a certain flavor. It's like I don't want to, I don't need ten songs in a row, of that thing. Right. Right. I yeah. like olives, but I don't know if I'm going to eat a pound at a time. It's a bad analogy, but yeah. No, I get it. Um. You and I have gone to a couple concerts together. Do you... Well, yes, we have, haven't we? We have. Yeah. Um, do, you, do you... I mean, I imagine you don't go very frequently anymore, but do you still enjoy going to concerts? I do, but I like to... <laughs> I like to be seated. Yeah. I don't enjoy standing. Yeah. I don't enjoy coming early and standing through, like, three bands I've never heard of. And then by the time the main band I came to see comes on, I'm just like cashed. I don't enjoy standing in like a giant dusty field all day in the hot sun either. Like, so yeah, I, I love, I do love to go see live music, but in a very specific way now, like more intimate. I like the the stadium shows are fun too, or can be, Mm -hmm. but if you've got a seat. Yeah. And you don't get there too early. Yeah. Is any of the... That feeling when you're younger, when the lights went down and you're super excited, like, oh my God, they're going to come out here. Do you still get that? I do. You do? Yeah. Even after so many concerts and 
putting on concerts. And yeah, I mean, I think that I think that's that's like the magic of a live show. I think is that moment to me, like when the lights go down before the band starts. I still, I still get excited. That's pretty great. Yeah. Do you? Uh, no, not really. Um, Why is that? Was that? I mean, was that just like a a thing growing up for you? And once you started playing tons of shows, that got demystified, or? I think it got demystified by, yeah, by going to a lot of shows and playing a bunch of shows. And now it's kind of like you've seen kind of the how it works, and it just loses. I'm still pleased to see people I really like play, but I don't get that same that charge you get that like mm-hmm. when you're going tipping over the roller coaster right when the lights go down. I don't get that thing anymore. Yeah. Uh, or I haven't to know. I mean, it might still be possible. I saw Prince like two two years ago. His last time through Chicago, and I I had that I had that feeling. That's pretty sweet. He's Prince too, though. I still have moments in concerts that are great and that can be transcendent, but it's not that. It's not the anticipatory thing. I don't think. Yeah. That it that it was at one point. Um. Yeah, it's kind of a different. A different experience. Other recent concerts, Prince, you re- you were excited about and liked? Yeah, that was a great show. Yeah, it really was. And it was, uh, I think he was here three nights or something, and the first, first night was like a spectacular debacle. I wasn't there, but um, right. our friend David Singer was there that night, I think. And then uh, he tried, he made up for it the next night, which is, I think, the night I was there, and it was just amazing. It was a great show. Was that the first time you've seen him? No, no. I saw him uh, on the Love Sexy Tour in Worcester, Massachusetts, back in 80, the Worcester Centrum. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Nice. Yeah. That was a great tour. Sheila E. was was the drummer. Yeah. Let's talk about drummers you like, drummers you admire. Drummers I admire. I think number one's got to be Nigel Olson from uh, Elton John's John's band. band, Yeah, I like him a lot. Interesting. Yeah, he understands like the the importance of like space and like holding playing back a little bit. Very interesting. As far as timing goes, I have to go back and I mean I can. Playing through I just I, I'm a cheese man. ball man. I like I like the I like those slow mid tempo songs with the like the big the big drum fills, but they're not busy drum fills. Right. You know, and I feel like he's so like a don't he's let right the sun in there. Go down on me and stuff yeah. like that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. Love that kind of stuff. Um, when I was younger, it was like Phil Collins and Stuart Copeland and Neil Peart and those guys. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Especially Stuart Copeland, I think, and Phil Collins, those two. Yeah. Say it's such style, like such individual style. Right, those guys I feel like... They always knew a, when one of those guys was playing. Yeah, yeah, totally. That's right. Yeah. 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 I saw LCD Sound System a few years ago, and their drummer was, was, was amazing. I saw them here at Lollapalooza, I think, and he was, he's like clockwork. I mean, just like so solid and precise, which I thought was really, really cool. Mm -hmm. But with a feel still? 
Yeah, but it was more the precision. It was more the precision in his case that really kind of blew me away. Because it's dance music to a certain extent. Right. So he's, he's able to play kind of like... I feel like that's a Copeland thing too, right? Like when he would lay it down, like it was right. It was like a ticking metronome, but it was like a cool metronome. Yeah, and lots of off rhythms and the right. hi-hat work in particular with him was always just kind of blew my mind. I, I've always wondered actually if, if any of that stuff, if he overdubbed any of that or whether it was all live, the police stuff. Beesh. Because the stuff he was doing on the hi-hat in conjunction with the rest of it sounds like it's not possible in some, in some cases. Right. But I suspect he was playing live, but I don't know. Like, did he overdub yeah, some hi hat parts? Some yeah. The, the later records, probably, probably later not the first sure. record. Not the first record at all, but once you get into like ghost in the machine. Yeah. Yeah. That hadn't, that had never really occurred to me until Peter Gabriel's So record came out. And on one of the songs, Stuart plays just hi hats. He plays on big time, but on Red Rain, I think it is. He yeah. just plays it. He's just, right, credited as hi hats. I'm like, oh, of course, that makes right. sense. Right. Right. Yeah. It's always interesting to me, like, too, that, that it's, it's sort of accepted and conventional to overdub multiple guitars and like have a different guitar part that comes in you know with a totally literally a different guitar and a different sound in the chorus from the verse or whatever but it's this kind of conventional thing is the the drums are the same all the way through like to dub in a second kit or a second snare or extra hi-hats is like that's crazy talk but it's actually with other instruments it's Totally normal keyboards or guitars or vocals yeah. or stuff. No, well, I don't know. Maybe that's that's maybe that's changed over time. Yeah. Just like the others have. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. I feel like you hear over these days you hear overdubbed everything, you know? Sure. It seems well, rare you never know what's hear... right now. I feel like you and you have no idea what right. what's really going on. Yeah. Or if it's even someone's real singing voice, you know? Yeah, right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right, Simon, we don't want to take up your whole day. No. So we'll, we'll have you back for more, <laughs> for more topics. Sounds uh, good. Thanks, thanks, for, thanks for, for having me. Thanks for being the first guest on the show. <laughs> My Thanks pleasure. for bringing the breakfast treats. Mm-hmm. Um... Michael Edward Simons. That's me. Thanks, Nick. Yeah, my pleasure. (laughs)